Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our text is from Malachi, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, and I'll be reading through verse 7. These are the words of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi." And purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts." For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, op- for the opportunity to open your word, to study it, to let it have its way with us. We pray that your spirit will be among us now as we've come into your presence, as we've, as we've confessed our sins, as we've offered our praises up to you, Let us now hear your word for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, again, as I've had opportunity to preach here uh, at Trinity Church, we are working through the book of Malachi. Uh, It's... of course, there are you know, months in between each time, and so uh, it's good to do a little bit of review. Malachi, the name of the prophet that wrote this book and the name of the book itself uh, in Hebrew means my messenger or angel. The, word, the Hebrew word for uh, messenger is melech, and uh, it's the same word that is also translated angel often in the Old Testament. Malachi was a prophet to the Jews after their return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple. So the Jews had been carried into captivity into Babylon and were there for 70-some years, and then God brings them back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah and Ezra bring the people back, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. There are all kinds of, there's reformation and revival that goes on through Ezra's teaching. But Malachi's prophecy comes sometime, maybe, maybe contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe a bit after Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi is rebuking the people because of their uh, falling away from God's laws. And particularly rebuking, bringing uh, charges and rebukes against the priests and against the leaders of the people. Malachi's oracle contains a series of back and forth between God and his people, again, specifically the priests, in which Yahweh sets many charges, particularly against these Levites, whose duty it was to guard the people and to tend the flock of Israel, teaching them God's ordinances. You can see, if you, I've got a couple of cross-references there in your notes. If you look at those, you'll see that there are commands given to the Levites 
to shepherd God's flock, to guard them and to keep them, to teach them God's law. This was the, one of the primary duties of the Levites. They weren't just there to offer sacrifices to God, although that was a key part of what they did. They were also the teachers of God's law. They were the pastors in Israel. And so God is bringing many rebukes against them. The book of Malachi is chiastically structured. It can be seen as a chiasm. Again, a chiasm is a literary structure which an author will use to draw the reader's attention to a particular central point. Uh, That doesn't mean that's the only thing to be drawn out from a particular text, but when there are chiasms and when they are obvious, we ought to pay attention to them and see where where the author is directing our attention. So this book is, I think, chiastically structured. And at the center of this chiasm, this whole book is uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And in this section, Yahweh accuses the priests of spiritual harlotry. He compares the the fact that Judah has taken a a wife of the pagans, and he compares that to the people of Judah, and he compares that to idolatry. Spiritual harlotry in scripture is the same as idolatry. So he accuses them of this spiritual harlotry as well as treachery or adultery with their own wives. They're both spiritually adulterous and temporally adulterous. In this next section, so that's the center of the chiasm of the book. The, the, sort of the, big, the great charge that God is bringing against his people is their idolatry. They're turning away from him and seeking after foreign gods once again. In this next section then, as we're moving away from the center of the chiasm, God says that they weary him with their words. It's as though the people are desperately trying to provoke God's wrath. I think is another way of seeing what God says here. You weary me with your words. You weary me with your complaints. Now we know that God does not actually grow weary. He does not act, he's not actually um, subject to passions like we are. But God is speaking here in such a way, I think, bringing an accusation against the people. It's like you're really trying to tick me off. You're really working hard at this. God says they weary him with their words, and yet he does not respond with a rash outburst. He does not respond by immediately smiting them and consuming them. He does not change, he says, at the end of this section, and he has not forgotten his promises. And so he does not immediately consume this people that despises him. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that our God is a consuming fire. But he tells these people that he writes to, that Malachi is writing to, of one who will come to purify them. God is a consuming fire. That is, that is a, what we might call an inescapable concept. God is a consuming fire to believer and unbeliever. And the question is, what does he consume? It's not a question of whether he's going to consume something. He is a consuming fire. The question is, what will he consume? And so Malachi prophesies of this one who is coming to purify God's people. And so let's look a little bit more closely at this text in terms of the structure here. I'd like to point out to you um, another chiasm that I think what's been fascinating to me as I've worked through the book of Malachi is the whole book, I think, can be structured as a chiasm. But almost every section, not quite every section, but almost every section within that chiasm itself can be seen as a chiasm, which is kind of helpful, I think, to read through the book of Malachi, noticing these things. These are sort of the high points in each section that Malachi is talking about. So if we look at this particular section here, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, 
If you look at the, if you have the uh, notes in front of you, you can see this outline. In verse 17, we find that Judah wearies God and Judah goes on to question God's justice. God says, you weary me with your words and they respond, in what way do we weary you? And God explains that they weary him primarily in the way in which they question his justice. That's parallel with, if you look down at the bottom of the outline, A prime, where God says that he does not change. This is verse, uh, chapter three, verses six and seven. God says, I do not change. And yet you, the people that he's talking to, you have abandoned my law, my ordinances, my justice. So the people are accusing God of changing, of no longer being a God of justice. And at the end of this section, God says, I do not change, but you have abandoned my law. Then moving in from that, the B sections, we find in chapter three, verse one, that Yahweh says he will draw near by sending his messengers. And he identifies two particular messengers that he's going to send to the people. And then B prime, God says again that he will draw near in judgment against those who do not fear him. He's going to draw near by means of these messengers, but then he will again draw near in judgment on those who do not fear him. And then in the center of this section, sometimes in a chiasm you have a single central point, and sometimes you have a single parallel point, uh, or a a parallel center. And that's what we have, I think, in this section. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says that the coming of the Lord will refine the sons of Levi so that they may offer righteous sacrifices. And then in the next verse, chapter 3, verse 4, is our C prime uh, section here. It says that the offering will be pleasant once again. It's the effect of the coming of this messenger. So that's, I think, the basic outline of the text. Right at the center, then, we have this coming of the Lord and the effects of the, this come, of, the, of the one who will come. What does he do when he comes? So backing out to the A sections, we'll, we'll, I'll walk, walk through these throughout the sermon, kind of section by section, or in parallels. So we'll deal with the A sections first, and then we'll deal with the B sections, and then we'll end with the C sections in the middle. So first of all, about God's justice. The priests complain that God has forgotten his justice. They say that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Right? What, what's up, God? You are delighting in those that are doing evil. They, these people have recently returned from exile. They've rebuilt the temple. And there are lots of prophecies in Isaiah and other prophets that speak about the prosperity that is going to come upon God's people as he delivers them from their bondage. And it would make sense then that these priests seem to have expected that God would prosper them and that he would trample down their enemies all around them as they have come back and rebuilt the temple. But they look around them, and if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you can see that as, as Ezra and Nehemiah are building, rebuilding the temple, there are lots of enemies around them still. God does not just come and, and, and put down all of their enemies right away. There are enemies, there are people there that hate the Jews and that want to disrupt what they're doing. So they look around and they see that the wicked are doing well, or as we might put it, we see bad things happening to good people. And they accuse God of delighting in those who do evil. The irony here is thick, though. 
Because if you recall, if you scan back at the first three chapters, or first two chapters of Malachi, you can see accusation after accusation that God has brought against these very people. He's told them and charged them and accused them with how they despise his name, chapter 1, verse 6. How they defile his altar, chapter 1, verse 7. And, and after that, how they bring all kinds of uh, perverse and broken and sick offerings to the Lord. How they lead his people astray, chapter 2, verse 8. How they have committed idolatry, chapter 2, verse 11. And adultery, chapter 2, verse 14. And divorce, chapter 2, 16. God has already told them that they are cursed because they will not take his words to heart. Chapter 2, verse 2. He's told them that they do not keep God's law and instead they abuse others with it. Chapter 2, verse 9. He says to them at the end of this section in in chapter 2, verse 9, I also have made you contemptible and base before all, all the people because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. These are the people, these are the people that are crying out to God for justice. They're the ones who have brought defiled sacrifices to the altar. They despise God's name. God says at the beginning of Malachi, if I am a father, where is my honor? Doesn't a son honor his father? And yet you do not honor me. You despise my name. They abuse God's law. They show partiality in the law instead of dealing justly and loving mercy. I think we're, here we have a, an actual, uh, actually a very uh, relevant application. It's easy for us to look around at the church in our, con- in our country, in our nation, in the West, broadly speaking, and wonder why the church is so ineffective. It's easy to look around and say, in, in a country where there are millions of Christians, why are we not more effective? Why, why, is there, why are God's enemies not being put down? Why are God's enemies not being converted? Why are God's enemies in power? Why are bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people? In some sense, this is a question for all time, but I think as we look at our particular context, I think we have a very, one very clear answer, particularly as we consider what Malachi is talking about. We are ineffective in the West in, in our churches because we ordain homosexuals, because we ordain adulterous men, because we ordain fornicating men in our pulpits, because our churches are led by people that are compromised, because our churches are led by those who do not apply God's law, who do not seek justice and love mercy. This is something that we as a church ought to continue to pray about and pray for reformation and revival about. This is why we encourage you as as the people at Trinity Church to be students of God's word because we don't want you to take what your elders tell you for granted because we are subject to God's word just as you are and perhaps even more so. There's a higher responsibility for us, a higher standard for the leaders of the church because as goes the church, so goes, goes the nation. And as goes the leaders of the church, so goes the church. As the shepherds are leading the church, that's the direction the church will go. I think, so I think we can see a parallel here from Malachi's day to our own day. 
And yet there's still this question of God's justice. So these priests are looking around at the injustices that they see or they think that they see. And they despise God because in his heart, in their heart, they want him to hold others to the standard that he has set out while themselves not abiding by it. And so they question God's justice and his goodness. Again, here's what they say. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. They're saying that God delights in evil, that God delights in sin. And then the parallel accusation that goes along with this is a rhetorical question. They say, where is the God of justice? If you're questioning God's justice, in effect, you're not just questioning whether God is just, you are questioning whether God is God. Questioning God's justice is a question of idolatry. When these people say, where is the God of justice? They are, they are questioning God's divinity, his Godhead, perhaps even his existence. Calvin, I think, puts this very well. He says, they malignantly impeached God. They either charged God with injustice or alleged that his divinity was annihilated. So these priests exhibit the height of hypocrisy because they are harboring sin in their own hearts and they are lusting to see others punished for their sins. This is high-handed hypocrisy. They harbor their own sin. They defile God's sanctuary. They offer unfit sacrifices. They burden the poor. They despise God's name in their hearts. So they're harboring all of their own sin and yet they cry out to God asking God, God, why won't you apply your standard of justice to these people around us? And yet, although the priests have been unfaithful, at the end of this passage in verse six, go ahead and turn there. God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Although these priests have been unfaithful, God's argument in answer to them is simply that he does not change. God's plans and his purposes will not change. And as we will see, he will come at some point in time in severe judgment on those who do not fear him. But the fullness of that time in Malachi's day is not yet come. The fullness of time has not yet come. God's plans and his purposes do not change. He has a plan to send a messenger who will purify the sons of Levi before he visits them in judgment. And the wearying, the, the, the provoking of these people is not enough to change God. You weary me with your words. You, you try to provoke me to wrath, but my plans do not change. The fullness of time has not come yet. Although they deserve his consuming fire, though God is wearied by their words, he is not provoked to a fiery and consuming judgment yet. And we move into the, cent, to the, the middle sections or the, um, the B sections. 
We see a parallel here about God drawing near. God draws near to these people in two ways. He draws near to them by sending messengers that will, uh, that will call them back to him, that will refine them and purify them. And then he draws near to them, to those who do not fear him, in severe judgment. So these people, again, ask where God is. They ask, where is this God of justice? And he responds that he will send a messenger to prepare the way for him. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is John the Baptist, the great and final prophet before Jesus began his public ministry. Uh, This verse is quoted in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 11, where Matthew identifies John the Baptist as this uh, particular messenger that Malachi is prophesying of. This uh, passage is also parallel to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40 of the the voice uh, of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This is speaking of John the Baptist. So there, if we read this verse, uh, let's let's look at this, uh, chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So there are um, two messengers here. There's the first messenger that will come and will prepare the way before God, and that is John the Baptist. And then the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. That's a second messenger. The second messenger we know is Christ, is the Lord Jesus. John the Baptist preached a message of repentance, calling the people to turn from breaking covenant with God in order to prepare for the one who would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember that John says this in Matthew chapter 3 when he's speaking to the, uh, to the Jews. He says, I'm coming first and I'm baptizing you with water, but I'm doing it preparing the way for the one who is going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist is this messenger that is coming to prepare the way of the Lord who will come and will purify his people with fire, with the refiner's fire. These hypocritical priests in Malachi's day, they demand God's attention. And if he gave the justice that they asked for, if he came and visited them with his strict justice, they would be consumed in his wrath. Instead, he will send a prophet to call the people to repentance. Here's another interesting thing about this. Remember that uh, the word or the name Malachi means and can be translated as my messenger. And so here in the Hebrew, you would have at the beginning of verse one, you'd have, behold, I will send Malachi and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi here is not, I think, drawing attention to himself, but that parallel should catch our attention. Malachi is preaching the same message that John the Baptist will be preaching, a message of repentance, calling the people to repent. And this is in order to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. Again, another messenger. The messenger of the covenant. And and again, another interesting parallel, which we will allude to later on as well, is that messenger or melech in Hebrew can also be translated as angel. When, an, when God sends the angel of the Lord, it is the messenger of the Lord who comes to visit his people. This second messenger is the one who will follow the first that prepared the way. And so we see that this is Jesus. This is the Lord of justice whom they seek. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
But do they really seek him? Do they really seek his justice? After this Lord comes, then in verse 5, we're told, <coughs> we're told that God will draw near for judgment and that he will be a swift witness against those who do not fear him, against those who do not worship him. Malachi includes a list here of some specific types of people, sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, exploiters, and those who turn away the alien, who turn away strangers or foreigners. These are, uh, these are parallel to the other things that Malachi has brought out against the priests so far in this book. They are perjurers. They twist God's justice. They are sorcerers. Uh, sorcerers are, is, sorcery in the Bible is not um, restricted to sort of witchcraft, although it often includes that, but it's often very much tied to idolatry. It's very much tied to, again, that spiritual harlotry. Again, what Malachi has accused these priests of. And so this list uh, fits well with the accusations that have already been brought against these priests, but it also fits with accusations that Jesus brings against the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. It's really interesting. If you go and read through Matthew 23, a lot of what Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees, over and over he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he tells them why he's bringing this accusation against them. And it it generally fits very well with this list that Malachi gives here. And this happens, Jesus says these things against the scribes and Pharisees right before he tells them of the destruction that is going to come upon them and their nation and the temple in 70 AD. And so these people are asking, where is the God of justice? God is patient, he is slow to anger, but he is a consuming fire. He is going to draw near them in two ways. He's going to draw near to them by sending these messengers to call them to repentance. He's going to send the Messiah to call the people to repentance. And those that are in the Messiah, those who are in Christ will be preserved. And God is going to also visit a swift judgment upon Israel, upon the sons of Levi, upon those who do not fear him and worship him. And this brings us to the center then of this passage, the two parallel parts here. We have here in in verses two through four, a description of the coming of this Lord and the effect of his coming. When he comes, who can endure it? Who can endure the day of his coming? There's a beautiful rendition of this in Handel's Messiah, which I encourage you all to go and see this Christmas season. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Who can stand on his own righteousness before God? There's other scriptures that speak about, that use this language of saying how uh, because of our sin, no one can stand before God. To be able to stand before God is to be able to stand and be declared to be righteous before him. But none of us can stand on our own righteousness. None of us can endure his coming. He comes Malachi tells us as a judge into the temple and as a refiner's fire, burning up the dross to leave the gold pure. 
Uh, Peter uses similar language to this in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he's speaking to Christians, he's writing to Christians and he's writing encouragement to them as they are undergoing trials and persecution. And he says that, uh, they are, that what is being preserved in them through the fire of these trials is their faith. That God is refining them through their trials, making them like pure gold and burning away everything that needs to be burnt away, everything that does not last, so that they are left as pure gold. There's a, one, one description I read of this refining process, I think it was for silver, is once you have the ore and you melt it down, uh, there, the dross or the, the, um, the, uh, the not silver part of the ore floats up to the top and can be scraped off. And so uh, a refiner would sit over this uh, boiling, melted silver and would scrape the dross off the top. And then more would rise up to the top and he'd scrape off more and more would rise up. And it's undergoing intense heat in order for this to happen. And the process would continue until the refiner could look into the silver and see his own reflection purely, see his own reflection perfectly. That's what God is doing with you, with his people as he refines them. He's refining you and refining you and refining you, often under intense heat, so that he then will be able to look at you and see his image perfectly. That's what God is doing with us. That's what this purifier does. He comes as a refiner's fire. He also comes like launderer's soap or fuller's soap in the King James. This was a very caustic soap that, was, that had to be very forcefully worked into, uh, usually, I think, woolen garments. And it was worked into them often by, by beating the clothes. And it, and it produced bright white clothing, bright white clothes but it was not a, not, not a pleasant process for the clothing. There's a, another parallel to this in Mark chapter nine when Jesus uh, goes up on the mountain and is transfigured before three of his disciples and Moses and Elijah appear with him. And it says that he was then clothed with garments that were white, so white that no fuller or no launderer could make them. He is the pure white Son of God. He is the purely white, perfect, complete God Himself. And He is going to purify His people in the same way. He's going to take their sins and burn them up. He's going to take their sins and wash them out of them and make them white as snow. His fiery cleansing does not destroy the sons of Levi, and instead He purifies them so that they may offer. Righteously. Again, the first part of, or one of the first parts in Malachi is about how unrighteously, how defiled the priests are offering their sacrifices. But instead, he's going to um, purify them, refine them, so that their offerings now are righteous once again. In fact, they will offer again uh, uh, sacrifices that are not just righteous, but they are pleasing to God. This, if, this is in uh, verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. This is really striking in the book of Malachi, because look back at chapter uh, 1, verse 10. We should actually back up to um, verse 9. 
Malachi says, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands, this, this, bringing these defiled sacrifices to the altar. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? Isn't there anybody in, in Israel, anybody among the priests that would stop the defi these defiling sacrifices? Isn't there somebody? And the, the presumed answer is no. And so then God says, I have no pleasure in you, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. You're defiled in your hearts. You're defiled in the way that you come before God in worship. And so I have no pleasure in you. And yet here in chapter three, verse four, God says, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. The people are in need of a refiner, one to come and purify them. This is a parallel also in chapter 2, verse 13. This is where God has accused the priests of their spiritual harlotry, their idolatry, and then he turns and he's going to accuse them of the way that they have dealt treacherously with their own wives. And so verse 13, he says, this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. You're bringing your offerings to the Lord in the midst of your sin. In the midst of your defilement. And God says he hates that. God says he will not regard it. He will not even look at it. He will not accept it. And yet again, there's this promise in chapter 3 that the offering will once again be pleasant to the Lord. How is this possible? How is this accomplished? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. How is it that these sinners, these sinful, hypocritical priests that dare to come before God, the most holy God in worship with their sin, how is it that they will be able to offer pure, sweet-smelling sacrifices? It's only by the work of Jesus Christ. It's only by the perfect sacrifice that he made because he is a pleasing aroma to the Father. It is his pleasing aroma, his sacrifice that God smells when you come into the worship service and confess your sins and it's declared to you that your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, then you come in here and God no longer smells your sin. He doesn't smell your past sins. He doesn't smell your present sins. He doesn't smell your future sins. He smells the sacrifice of Christ and it's pleasing to him and therefore you are pleasing to him. Through the work of Jesus, we are all made into this holy priesthood. 
We're made into a holy priesthood. That, that, that should strike you as odd. In, in the old covenant, with old covenant Israel, there were a select group of people that were pulled out from the rest of Israel to be the priests, to represent Israel. In the new covenant, though, you're all priests. You're all priests. You're all offering sacrifices to God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that, that through Jesus, through having, through having been bought by the blood of Christ, that you then are being made, you're being built up into God's temple and you're being made a holy priesthood that offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so because of this, so what are these spiritual sacrifices? There's a couple things. Again, back in Ephesians chapter two, the exhortation that Paul gives when he's alluding to the, the pleasant aroma that is Christ, he's saying to imitate God. Imitate God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. That sacrifice of Christ where he loved you and gave himself for you, that's the sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma to God. That's Jesus walking in love and that's what you are to imitate. And if, if you happen to still be in Ephesians 5, look up one verse, two verses. Paul says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. How is it that you offer spiritual sacrifices to God? It's by walking in love and laying your life down for your brother. It's by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. How much has God forgiven you? Imitate God in that towards the way, in the way that you treat one another, in the way that you forgive one another. This is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There's another passage that is parallel to this in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, offer yourselves, your, living, your bodies as living sacrifices. Everything that you do as a Christian is a sacrifice. Every place that you are then is an altar. And in every place you are to lay yourself out as a sacrifice before the Lord. And in Christ, it is a pleasing aroma to him. But we need to remember, of course, that this is all in the context of the fire of God. God is a consuming fire. For those who are in Christ, the fire of God does not consume them, at least in his wrath. But there is another sense in which it consumes them. It consumes them like, like the ore that is put in the furnace is completely consumed and enveloped by the fire. But it's not consumed and it blows away. It's consumed and refined. God refines those who are in Christ and makes them more fit for glory. When we abide in Christ and he in us, then we are like Daniel's three friends that were thrown into the fiery furnace, but not consumed because the angel of the Lord, because God's angel, God's messenger is with us, right? When, when uh, Daniel's three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, 
they're, they're taken to the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar tells, the, tells his servants to make it seven times hotter. And the servants, the guards are brought near and they throw them into the fire furnace and it's so hot that the guards themselves are incinerated. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks and he sees not three forms, but four in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, recognizes that it's God's angel, God's messenger that's there with them. And because he is with them, they are not consumed in the fire. That's what you are like. In Christ, you're thrown into the fire, into the fire of judgment, but you're not consumed, rather you're refined. We are like the bush that Moses saw. It's interesting, I was listening to another sermon on this, on this passage, and, and the preacher pointed this, uh, I think, wonderful uh, parallel out. In the, in the story of the, the burning bush with Moses in Exodus, what, why is it a bush? Why, why is there a bush that's burning? Well, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Israel is identified as some kind of a plant. Different times it's a tree or a vine, but it's, Israel is a plant. Israel is God's plant. And then you have Moses who sees this bush, and it's on fire. And yet the bush is not consumed. There's fire, there's living fire in the bush, but the bush is not consumed. We are like that bush that Moses saw where the angel of the Lord appeared to him as a fire in the burning bush, but the bush was not consumed. Why are you not consumed by God's wrath? If you're in Christ, it's only because of that. It's only because of Christ in you. And if Christ is in you, then you cannot be consumed because you're already in fellowship with God. If you're outside of Christ, the only reason you are not consumed by God's wrath now is because the time is not yet, because he is patient and slow to anger. But it doesn't change the fact that he is a consuming fire. The message that these messengers, the Malachi prophesies about, was a message that Malachi's people needed to hear. He's telling them about the messenger that's going to come, alluding, I think, maybe partially to himself. They need to hear this message of repentance because John the Baptist is going to come and that he's going to be the last prophet before the coming of the second messenger, the Messiah. And they need to repent. They need to turn to him or they're all going to be destroyed. This is still a message for us today. It's a message for you today. It's the same message, though. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is certainly true for those who do not yet believe in the Lord Jesus. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus as Lord of everything, as Savior who, is, who died and was raised from the, get, from the dead for your salvation, then you need to hear these words. Behold the Lamb of God. Why? Because he takes away the sins of the world. Why do you need to look to Jesus? Because he takes away your sins. But this is not just true for those 
who have not yet believed. This is true for you who do believe. Our God is a consuming fire. And if he has judged your sins in Christ's work on the cross, then you are consumed in Christ. And you are refined by his fire. So the question that you should ask yourself this morning is, what do you need to be refined in? What is the dross that is floating to the top in your life as God, as God puts you in the furnace, in the situations that he has you, what's the dross that's coming to the top that's being made evident to you? There is something. What is it? What is it that you need the refiner to come and scrape off the top and take away? It's right before you. What sin continues to cling to you, bind you, stumble you, pursue you? And you think, I cannot get away from it. I'll never get away from it. Well, there's a reason it's floating to the top and it's so obvious to you. It's because the refiner is near. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Confess that sin. This repentance, this acknowledgement of your sin, this giving it over to the Lord Jesus, this brings freedom and joy. And it's freedom and joy that rests not at all, not one little bit, in your ability to see it, in your ability to confess it, in your ability to acknowledge it before God, in your ability to do other things well. Not a bit of it. But there is freedom and joy in resting in the refining work of Jesus Christ. His completed work for you and his refining work in you. He's not done with you yet. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ like the first day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, You are a consuming fire. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to forget that. We love you, and in Christ we know your love for us. But sometimes we need the reminder of your fire. Teach us to hate our sin like you hate it. And teach us in the midst of hating our sin to turn to Christ to place our trust in him. And Lord, I pray for the sins that are known here, that you would burn them away. That you would take them away. Because Jesus has already paid for them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.